We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Support for this podcast comes from U.S. Bank. U.S. Bank wants to know how you reward yourself because they have cards that make every day more rewarding. Are you a points order, cashback guru, low intro APR lover? With U.S. Bank, it's up to you because they have the cards to fit your lifestyle. So earn more whether you're shopping at a gas station or grocery store, even while planning a staycation. Learn more at usbank.com slash credit card. U.S. Bank credit cards are issued by U.S. Bank National Association N.D. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. Welcome to another Run It Back edition of the Rotowire NBA podcast. It is Tuesday, May 19th. A few weeks ago, we revisited the 2009 NBA draft. This time, we go back even further to one of the league's all time iconic nights, the 1996 NBA draft from New Jersey, which gave us four future Hall of Famers and a bunch of other really good players who would kind of help define the NBA around the turn of the millennium. Kobe Bryant, Steve Nash, Allen Iverson, Ray Allen, of course, at the top. We also get some Marcus Camby action, some Peja Stojakovic action. Rick Pitino is even on the telecast. John Calipari stops by. This was another really fun one to look back on. And we went deep on the first round, which, you know, really starting with Iverson at number one was just stocked with so much talent that would help replenish the league in the years after Michael Jordan at a time when a lot of the biggest stars from the nineties were starting to age out. 
So we get this new infusion of guys and especially young guards who truly end up shaping what the league would look like for the next decade, decade and a half. As always, I have Alex Barutha and James Anderson on the line. Let's get to it. And tonight, you've arrived at a place where childhood dreams will come true with the big city of New York as a backdrop. Some of the best young players in the world stand at the doorstep to the big time, the NBA. We welcome you to East Rutherford, New Jersey, and the home of the New Jersey Nets, Continental Airlines Arena. It is the 1996 NBA Draft, start to finish on TNT. Thanks for being with All right, us tonight. Alex Barutha. James Anderson are on the line. We are here to revisit the 1996 NBA draft. This is from June 26 of 1996. This one took place at Continental Airlines Arena in New Jersey, which according to all of the panning overhead shots that we see throughout the telecast appears to be out in the middle of absolutely nowhere uh, on the outskirts of, of New York City. Um, Guys, this was obviously an all-time draft, one that is still to this day talked about as as perhaps the best um, in terms of the the top tier talent that it produced, um, and and certainly one of the best of the last you know twenty to twenty five years. I mean, this is the Kobe draft, Ray Allen, Allen Iverson, Steve Nash, um, you know, kind of the headliners, four guys who are either going to be in the Hall of Fame or already are in the Hall of Fame, and <clears throat> you know, then a long list of of role players from Marcus Camby to Stefan Marbury, Peja Stojakovic, a lot of guys who who were all-stars, maybe not quite Hall of Fame caliber players, but this was a really fun draft to to look back on. And my main takeaway after watching last night, why is Rick Pitino not on the telecast for every single NBA draft? Yeah, he was really good. Uh, I mean, I think he had a much better relationship with the media back then. <laughs> um I mean, he was definitely riding high coming off of that uh, NCAA championship with Kentucky. And he was clearly sort of uh, in the mix to get back into the NBA. So he wanted to kind of keep a, a good relationship with NBA media folks. And obviously, I think he only went back to coach Kentucky for one more year before taking the Celtics job. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it, it was kind of. Uh, a self-serving move by him to sort of be on that that broadcast but yeah he was he was really awesome yeah patino was joined by hubie brown who sounds exactly the same in 1996 as he does today for the most part looks the same uh he's aged a little bit but but not all that much Uh, and then ernie johnson is running the show on this telecast they have peter vesey and craig seger as kind of secondary guys who are running some of the interviews after picks and, you know, in, in Vessi's case, you know, at times attempting to tip the next two or three picks, uh, often unsuccessfully. Um, and then they, they had something which I would imagine was fairly revolutionary at the time, kind of doing like whip around coverage for each division. So they had one remote reporter who was, you know, embedded, I guess, for a lack of a better term with, with each division. And, you know, they would flash to them once or twice throughout the telecast for, for added insight. So it was a, a pretty extensive crew um, you know, we're talking probably 10 plus, um, you know, hosts or reporters who are working on this telecast. So, you know, Alex, you, you, and, you and I were talking uh, off air before we started recording. Uh, I know you were pretty impressed with the presentation of it all for it being the mid 90s. Yeah, I thought it was pretty clean. Like there weren't there weren't really like any mistakes. And when they would cut to things, it was all like 
it was just all very clean and I was never there didn't seem to be too many hangups. I thought all the analysis was done really well and it was concise and I'd like the strengths and weaknesses graphic, even though it hasn't like aged particularly well. I thought, you know, they didn't like try to break down every player like a ton. They were just, you know, the, the graph was like, here's two strengths, here's two weaknesses. Um, overall, I thought it was just like very easy to watch which is kind of the bar to clear most of the time for, for these sorts of sorts of things. Right. I felt the same way, um, you know, especially for, you know, some of the limitations of, of technology at the time compared to the drafts that we're used to seeing, you know, now in, in 2019, 2020, they began the telecast with this strange, like poem like intro uh, narrated by magic Johnson kind of talking about how significant it is to be drafted. Um, not sure we'll really see anything like that ever again. Um, but at the top of the telecast, they also note that there's no CBA in place ahead of the upcoming 96, 97 season. So the telecast virtually begins with an interview with deputy commissioner, Russ Granick, um, who, who sits down with, with Vessi and basically they discuss, you know, the state of the league at this time, whether a lockout would be coming, whether a lockout should be coming. And, you know, obviously with it being a national TV telecast, they're not going to lean, uh, too hard one way or the other but of course the league does end up getting a cba in time and the lockout is at least pushed a few seasons until uh 98 99 but uh they also note that there's talk of charles barkley being traded and they kind of tease that it could happen during the draft and they're, they're, this is you know barkley leaving phoenix uh after his run there in the mid 90s he ends up in houston but you know they're talking about the knicks apparently trying to package their three first round picks which are all in the middle of the first round and potentially a player or two to get Charles Barkley. So the, the, they kind of tease that action at the top. And of course, Barkley is not traded during the draft. Um, but one thing I also found interesting in the intro is, you know, they're talking about 36 underclassmen are eligible for this draft. Like they're talking about underclassmen, meaning, you know, freshmen or sophomores, like you, you, you would hear 10 years later, guys talk about high schoolers coming out. Yeah, I think this was this draft set a lot of records that they sort of touched on. Um, I think like what were the first like nine picks underclassmen or something like that, or the first six or seven, something like that. Um, mm -hmm. And that was all very revolutionary at the time. But I mean, it, it wasn't like these guys were a bunch of busts. I mean, the, the top of the draft went pretty well. Like I, I think it, you know, the, it would obviously be a different order if you redid it with hindsight, but uh, it's not like those underclassmen were just uh, littered with busts for the most part, they were uh, the right guys. And so, yeah, I mean, it was, it was definitely kind of a changing of the eras in terms of how the draft went. Yeah. And the, the thought was at that time still like, why would I draft an underclassman who's going to be good in three years when I could just draft an upperclassman who's good now? Like, we need them to be good now. Our team is bad. And it's like, at this point, it's we all know that underclassmen can be just as good and oftentimes better than the, the people, uh, the upperclassmen. So that kind of thought was still, you know, uh, hovering over the draft at this point. I don't know at what point it switched from being considered a good thing to stay in school through your junior or senior season versus now, or even five or 10 years ago, where especially if you were a five-star recruit coming out of high school, let's say you were the seventh player 
in your class on on rivals or whatever it was and you're still in school as a junior like that was viewed as a problem whereas now um you know at, at this point it's it's viewed as a red flag like the way, the way they're talking about Sharif Abdurrahim coming out you know he's this huge prospect uh, this is kind of before real prospect rankings but sounds like he probably would have been the number one or number two prospect in the country and and they talk about him and he ends up going three to Vancouver you know they say he initially declared then he backed out then he declared then he backed out and then he finally ends up declaring last second like you know, guys now, if you have a chance to go to the NBA and especially if you have a chance to be not even a first round pick, but in his case, a top five or a top three pick, it's kind of crazy that that would even be a debate. I mean, I have some notes on the Sharif pick. I, I don't know if we want to save that until we, we just go it. down the order. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it was I, you know, I thought Rick Pitino by for a college coach at that time. I thought he has actually kind of had a more sort of progressive open mind about it. You know, like I think most college coaches probably were just thinking this was um, craziness and like the end of the world. I'm sure Dick Vitale probably hated it and, and stuff like that. But Patino seemed to be fairly supportive of it. Like you mentioned guys like Jordan and guys like Magic and how they left early and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, they, I don't think the crew, I don't think like the TV broadcast was necessarily bagging on these guys for coming out early. Uh, it was a different time, though, as well, uh, just with the fact that you had, I think you had them for, what, three years before they could yep. leave? Or I mean, we talked about the thing with the C-Web when we did that game, like about how he was able to opt out after one year. So um, you could sort of see kind of the the fears, I guess, of if you're only going to have a guy for three years, if you take him when he's like 19 versus if you take him when he's 20, like maybe they wouldn't be ready to help um, as early. You could kind of see it from that angle. But um, yeah, I mean, like I said, most, most of the busts in this draft are guys that were four-year college players. Did you guys notice too how much, even into the early 20s of this draft, that they're talking about drafting for need? Yeah. Like a, a lot of times, they well, we're constantly mentioning, well, you know, Team X might lose this guy in free agency, so they have to make sure to draft, you know, a big man here to fill that role potentially. But then they weren't talking about what would happen if that player got re-signed, and then you're like number eight overall pick or whatever it was is now automatically a backup to this guy who's just re-signed long term. They were talking about need like the entire draft. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's crazy. Like. Uh, yeah, I mean, for pretty much every pick, it was just, well, I don't know, like, or, or like, this makes sense because of they, they need a point guard, or I don't know why they took this guy. They already have a center, <laughs> like that type of thing. All right, let's get into the picks. Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. I really get into the backstory of whatever I'm pouring, out of respect. There are literally years of experience behind these bottles. Wild Turkey, same recipe since 1942. If you want a true classic, this is what you want to order. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, American, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. If you know this draft, you know who goes number one. With the first pick in the 1996 NBA draft, the Philadelphia 76ers select... Allen Iverson from Georgetown University. There's talk before this trade or before this pick, excuse me, of uh, Vancouver 
um, you know, really wanting to get up to number one, presumably to get Allen Iverson. Uh, it's kind of a given at this point that Iverson's going to be the number one pick. He he stops taking visits uh, with other teams after meeting with the Sixers the week before the draft. So there, there's still a little bit of chatter that, you know, maybe somebody could swoop in with a crazy offer to move up. But uh, all indications heading into draft night are that it's going to be Iverson. Uh, although Rick Pitino really wants Marcus Camby here uh, because the Sixers play too slow because they have to wait for Derek Coleman to run down the court. <laughs> yeah, and then after Iverson is drafted, I, I can't remember who makes the point again of, well, he might be up the court before Derek Coleman and the rest of the team gets there. Like, I don't know if you want <laughs> yeah. to do that. There there was a lot of references to how uh, like out of shape and how slow to get up the court Derek Coleman was. There, they also, I think it was, um, like EJ said to Hubie or something. Like they were, they were talking like Iverson versus Marbury. Was seemed to be sort of like the kind of consensus talk about that top pick, just under the assumption that Philly was taking a point guard. I know, I know Patino said he would would have taken Camby, but um, it was kind of interesting. Just to at the time, it seemed like basically the the debate. If there had been like debate talk shows at the time, the debate would have been Iverson versus Margaret at the top. Right. And they note on the telecast that Iverson is the first guard to go number one overall since Magic Johnson, <laughs> which is not all that surprising based on how the league operated for all of those years. But I mean, that's that's a gap of what, like almost 20 years between those picks. Honestly, yeah, I'm was... kind of surprised that he went number one, just given how good of a prospect Marcus Camby right. was at the time. And even Magic Johnson was I mean, <laughs> basically seven feet tall. So yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the list right now, and it's, yeah, I mean, there are a few guys you could maybe say were guards, you know, someone like James Worthy or, or Larry Johnson, but I, I think they were more so forwards throughout their career. And you think that maybe this is a new era in terms of, you know, guards going number one, maybe the NBA starts to shift away. Really not the case at all. We don't get another guard going number one until Derrick Rose in 2008. And at that point, the floodgates open up a little bit. But but after Rose, it's, it's Blake Griffin the next year. And then you get back-to-back point guards going number one in 2010 and 11 with Wall and Kyrie. Uh, and then another kind of dead zone of Davis, Bennett, Wiggins, Towns. And then you get Simmons and, and Fultz in 16-17. So we're kind of getting to the point now where... I think it's probably 50-50. I don't, I don't think an elite point guard being at the top of the class is something that teams would would balk at at all. But uh, in 1996, still a pretty big deal. Yeah, I think the fact that Iverson is six feet tall, it just makes it all the more. I mean, that just it's kind of a testament to just how spectacular he was that year at Georgetown. Uh, because, I mean, you would have had to have just the craziest season ever, really, to be a six-foot guy and go number one overall, especially when you have a accomplished big man like Marcus Camby or like Sharif Abdurrahim, like you talked about, was a highly touted guy that was 6'10 as well or 6'9. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it was I, – I remember seeing those highlights of Iverson at, at Georgetown. Like, I, um, I don't think I was quite – old enough to be following this draft super closely, but I was like old enough to be like collecting like Allen Iverson rookie cards and stuff like that. Um, So, I mean, I remember him being kind of a big deal, but I mean, it it definitely had to have been just kind of a a once in a decade type of um, season for him to, to earn that top spot. 
Right. In his sophomore year at Georgetown, he, he played two years in college, 25 points, five assists, four rebounds, shot 48% from the field, up from 39% as a freshman, 37% from three. Um, you know, and, and he even says in his his post-pick interview, you know, they ask him, you know, what's, what's it going to be like playing with two guys like Coleman and Stackhouse who are at this point established uh, NBA, maybe stars, borderline stars. And he says, well, I'm not going to come in and take all the shots like I did at Georgetown. So he basically acknowledges that he had to be the man um, at that at that college program, and um, you know sounds like he's not going to come in and, and shoot every time. And you know I, I think early on maybe that wasn't the case, and obviously he he developed into one of the higher usage players that we've ever seen. But um, another selling point with Iverson, despite the size, James, two time Big East Defensive Player of the Year, which you know I think you think of Iverson as a guy who always tried on defense. Um, but because of his size just had so many limitations. So I think that was kind of another feather in his cap as a prospect was even though he was, you know, way undersized, especially by that time's NBA standards, he, he had the defensive reputation, at least in college. Yeah. I mean, he, they mentioned like he had a 10 steal game and like, I mean, he was just like an, an amazing guy at getting steals, mm-hmm. I think in college. And I, he kept that like in the NBA, he, he had, high steals oh, yeah. per game totals and stuff, but you would never think like, I, I don't think it's arguable that he was just like an amazing defensive player in the NBA. It's just no, kind no. of impossible. It's, it's like, it's just so rare to be that small and be able to hold up well as a defensive guard, especially when you have to shoulder that much load on the offensive end. Yeah. I mean, he, he, Averaged at least two steals per game for his first nine NBA seasons, so the numbers were always there. He's he led the league in steals three times, but I mean I think he was kind of more of like the Steph Harden type of defender, where yeah, you know, you're just out there for 40 minutes and you're you're moving around, you're just going to get steals. I don't think anyone was was confusing would, Iverson for an all defensive player. I would say like Russell Westbrook, kind of sure, like yeah. where you're you're jumping passing lanes, like you're you're kind of gambling here and there. Um, you're kind of making flashy plays defensively, but you're not really that great of a team defender. Mm-hmm. So Iverson has short hair at this point. That's very jarring to see. I mean, I, I knew that that was a part of his past, but it's just not something that you know I was ready to to kind of see on that level. And the other thing, and this this becomes a theme for many many picks during this telecast, the music selection during these Allen Iverson Georgetown highlights is like a folk type of vibe with like a, a couple harmonica solos <laughs> it was, yeah it was like blues traveler or right. a blowfish or something like that yeah it was uh i mean they they were i mean i guess like i, I don't know i it would have been sort of weird i guess in 96 for them to just be like playing like tupac or something but um yeah i mean they were they were they were trying to get the the dads involved with this broadcast I mean, even just the default like Sports Center highlight music would have been fine, yeah. but they they went they went a little they went a little rogue with the music selections, and there were a couple other guys who I I have noted as well got that same treatment. Any other notes on AI? I'm I'm good. Yeah. All right. Good so at too. number two, the Toronto Raptors take Marcus Camby out of UMass. Minnesota, Milwaukee, Boston, all were, were trying to get up to number two, um, ostensibly to take Camby, but who knows? Um, Isaiah Thomas was steadfast that he wanted to keep the number two pick and was openly telling people that he's taking Marcus Camby. I, I found a Jackie McMullen 
Sports Illustrated article from from the week before the draft in 1996, and she's quoted as as writing, "Some observers expect a curveball here, but says Thomas, I'm telling you, I'm taking Camby." So Isaiah Thomas is just letting everyone know a week before the draft that he's taking Marcus Camby. Why not? I mean, if uh, if you know that Philly's taking Iverson and you have the next pick. You would, you would think that somebody maybe wanted Marbury there. You'd maybe want to hang on to some leverage. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, hey, don't, don't overthink it. Um, when, you, when you got your guy, you got your guy. Uh, <laughs> I think he was being I, so straightforward that people are like, he, he has to be bluffing, right? Like he would, it would be insane to, to lock in this pick a week and a half before the draft. Yeah. Um, you know, he obviously had a, horrific tenure uh whenever he was like i think it, what he had multiple tenures as the Knicks gm and those those both went horribly or or at yeah. least one as like a gm one as an advisor or something um and then you know he was at the the pacers he was there as a coach i believe and like i think that um was it was a pretty steep uh drop off after larry bird uh retired if i remember correctly but uh, he did draft Tracy McGrady with the Raptors. I mean, like, I don't think too many teams would have done much differently than taking Damon Stoudemire and Marcus Camby, even though they, they clearly weren't the best players available in those two drafts in hindsight. But, um, you know, not a, not a horrific run as GM of the Raptors. Right. And after taking Stoudemire in 95, you can't really take Marbury in 96. So maybe, right. maybe that's part of it. Um, but yeah, yeah you're right. I mean, take Ray, Ray Allen, and, but. of course, but I mean, Cammy didn't end up being a bust. I mean, that's kind of what I want to talk yeah. about with this pick is I think if you redo this draft, you know, Marcus Camby in terms of VORP is fifth and in terms of win shares, he ends up sixth. So, you know, you'd rather have Ray Allen. You'd rather have Steve Nash. You'd obviously rather have Kobe, um, Peja versus Camby in terms of value is really close. Um, but I, I think you could argue that the longevity and the peak defensive abilities of Camby maybe puts him um, over over Peja. So there's a pretty good argument that the total scope of his career makes him the fifth or sixth best player in this draft. So not not a bust by any means at number two, but it's just really tough when you have you know multiple first ballot Hall of Famers going a few picks later. Yeah, and I I thought it was funny that like Patino they they were talking about how strong his low post game is, how good he is at passing. You have to send the double team, he'll pass out of it. It's like <laughs> he averaged like eight points a game for his career. He averaged less than two assists for his career. Right. They they also asked or well, I, I thought it was funny that he got announced as a power forward and like um they asked or he, he said in his interview with Craig Sager, he's like People always ask if I'm going to play the three or the four or the five. <laughs> Dude, you're not playing the three, and you're probably not going to play the four really either. Yeah, I thought it was pretty clear that he's a center, right? I mean, just even his credentials as a college player, I guess you can talk about the passing, but that really never translated to the NBA at all. He had one season where he averaged 3.3 assists per game, but for his first like 10 years, he would never even hit two assists per game. Uh, and kind of grew into, I wouldn't say a specialist, but, um, you know, one of the the first names that comes to mind when you're talking about the best shot blockers of the late 90s or the the mid 2000s, led the league in blocks four separate times, 
four-time all-defense selection, four-time blocks leader, like I said, defensive player of the year in 06-07 for Denver. Um, so a pretty nice career for Marcus Camby. Um, and I, I wouldn't say at the time the wrong pick because, James, maybe you have a little better memory on this than I do. But, I mean, I think he was someone who was a major, major star and whose profile had really kind of exploded at the college level. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I think he was like him and Iverson were probably the two most sort of household names in this draft from based on like what they did in college. And uh, yeah, I mean, and you could even make that case, you know, when you were comparing like him and Peja, like if you're just looking like three years down the road, like when you know you have them on your team, like Peja wasn't going to be ready to be much of a contributor uh, super early on. Um, So like it's, it's absolutely defensible. I mean, um, there's, you know, four or five, maybe six picks in the first 10 that are, that are significantly worse than the cambio. So at number three, Vancouver goes Sharif Abdurrahim. Um, yeah, they note on the telecast there, there were some thoughts that they would take Stefan Marbury. Some of the very primitive NBA mock drafts that I was able, able to dig up, most of which had like three to seven words of analysis per pick. Uh, a lot of those had uh, Marbury being the pick to Vancouver, but I, I don't know if they explicitly say it on the telecast at all. Um, I'm imagining there were some concerns about Marbury wanting to end up in Vancouver. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he clearly, like, he was excited when they talked to him later after he found out he got traded to Minnesota. Um, but even then, like, they were talking about part of the reason why the Bucks would have wanted to trade him was because they wouldn't have expected him to want to stay in Milwaukee. Right. So, I mean, Vancouver is a bigger city than Milwaukee, but I mean, NBA player, I guess, I think it's not until really the last like three or four years that NBA players have actually embraced playing in Canada, even though those cities are pretty awesome. Uh, it's just like, right. you know, that, that much further away from your family and everything. So, um, yeah, I think that definitely factored in. I think, uh, Sharif Abdurrahim, I mean, he was, a he was a good, good citizen for the the Grizzlies, even though he didn't really help them win much. So, um, yeah, I think that, that made sense. Yeah. The Brooklyn to Vancouver pipeline had not really busted open <laughs> quite yet at this point. Uh, but Sharif Abdurrahim, like you said, I mean, one of the all time good stats, bad team guys of his era made one all-star game, but averaged North of 20 points for five consecutive years from the start of the 97 season through 0102, which is the year that he did make the all-star game as a member of the Hawks. Um, so, I mean, he, not as impactful as a player overall uh, as Marcus can be, but not too far behind when you look at the wind shares numbers, when you look at the VORP numbers, uh, he usually comes in in like the 7 to 10 range, depending on which metric you want to use uh, in terms of career value. But uh, as you alluded to, James, never a guy who did a lot of winning, uh, a guy who played in six total playoff games in his entire career. That's more than I would have guessed. <laughs> <laughs> they, ca- they came with the kings of all franchises. I uh, I appreciated when uh, I think Ernie was talking about how uh, he Abdul Rahim was flip flopping between whether to stay or in school or go to the NBA. That he hit us with a Sharif Abdur. I'm not so sure Rahim joke. Uh, well, certainly did. To which Hubie chuckled respectfully 
which was nice. Because can you imagine dead air after that? Uh, so <laughs> it was close. I mean, Patino wasn't. It was close. No, he he was not. So we have to better, very veteran broadcast move by Hubie to to save Ernie on that one. I I have a a couple more notes on uh, Sharif. So they they had like they had a bunch of like canned interviews, um, like following these first like five or six picks, and so they had a an interview with uh, his college coach Todd Bozeman, and. Uh, they interviewed a couple college coaches on here where like I was like, is this the head coach or is this the guy that like hands him the bag of money? Like <laughs> the, Mem- the Memphis coach. <laughs> yeah. And but anyway, like so with Bozeman, he's like, you know, people have called him a Mercedes. And, you know, when I recruited him, I said, I'd rather drive a Mercedes for one year than a Volkswagen for five years. <laughs> uh. You don't get. It's it's four years. It's not five years. But he said five. He said Volkswagen for five years. I mean, I don't think Volkswagens are seen as like some terrible car. But right. um, but like he, he was just very kind of um, like you could just totally just picture these guys just being very uh, flippant and and very kind of open about uh, paying players to get them on the campus. <laughs> yeah, it had to be so much easier back then and uh, i think it was it was down to georgia tech and cal for abdurahim who's from marietta georgia so it, it could have been sharif and marbury playing together for a year at georgia tech um is sharif abdurahim the marvin bagley of his time the numbers <laughs> well, are astonishingly similar uh, well, I was especially looking say, at the college numbers like if you look at his free throw percentages and his three-point percentages like he he never took like there was one year in 99 2000 where he took 1.2 threes per game and shot like 30 percent but like he was over 80 percent from the line for his career and he had a couple of years in there where he was shooting like 35 36 like 41 percent like so you kind of wonder if if he came up now if he would just be seen as like a as a really solid stretch four, um, you know, he also was like up over a steal and up over a block a game in in multiple seasons. So um, might have been a little bit before his time, but I I, I kind of like the Bagley comp. Although I, I think Abdurrahim probably had better touch than Bagley, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely get it in terms of just the raw stats you expect them both to put up. I mean, I, I thought of Bagley when Camby was like, oh, I'm not sure if I'm a, they're not sure if I'm a three, four or five. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I think I thought the same thing, Alex. I just think Abdurrahim, like the player is more similar. Like nobody was confusing Marvin Bagley <laughs> yeah. as like a guy who's going to lead the league in blocks four times. Right, exactly. And it's interesting to look at Abdurrahim's positional breakdown. And one thing you notice throughout the telecast is how, how defined every position is at this point where, you know, even the designation between, you know, shooting guard, small forward, small forward, power forward, like there are five very distinct positions. It's not just guard forward, center, guard forward, big, whatever. Um, Like there's still this kind of dichotomy between each position. Abdurrahim ends up playing in his second season in Vancouver, 82% of his minutes at small forward because of Brian Reeves holding it down at center. And then Otis Thorpe, playing a ton of minutes at power forward. So he's, he's kind of out of position to begin his career. 
Yeah, and all of his highlights, like all in that like little brief highlight clip they showed, like most of that stuff was like around the the paint area. Right. So, um, I mean, today he would just be a no doubt, like stretch four. Uh, you know, debatable how effective he would have been in that role, but um, and I, I mean, I think he gets he gets a little unfairly dinged for the whole like he never won thing. I mean, if you just like look at the teams he played on like yeah. what, what what were you gonna do um but yeah i mean that there's not proof that he could impact winning either but um yeah i think numbers wise there have been much worse uh third overall picks so the fourth overall pick milwaukee takes stefan marbury out of georgia tech uh later in the telecast we of course learn that he's traded to minnesota they swap marbury for ray allen who goes five to minnesota and Milwaukee in the process picks up a future first round pick in 1998. The first rounder that Milwaukee got in the trade ends up being traded back to the Wolves two weeks later for someone named Andrew Lang, who played 52 games for the Bucks the following season and averaged five points and five rebounds. Just very, I mean, we, we've talked about this before, but just the the frequent trading of first round picks seemingly yeah. with like no regard. Yeah. And it just kind of comes out to, to play here to move up one spot where like the bucks clearly weren't planning on keeping Marbury. Like, and they clearly wanted Ray Allen. Like you, you're going to give up a first round pick to a team that has been picking in the top 10, like pretty much every single season like that. Even with you, when you get rookie Marbury and, and like third year Garnett uh, or second year Garnett, like that's still not going to be like a 50 win team. So you're basically giving up um, a borderline lottery pick just to move up one spot. I mean, it's, it's pretty hilarious. That pick ended up turning into Rosh Nesterovich for Minnesota. So it ended up kind of being a wash, but very easily could not have turned out that way. <laughs> yeah. With, I mean, with the wolves, trading for Marbury and Marbury being such good friends with KG. It was really hard not to think of like the D'Angelo Russell, Carl Anthony Towns dynamic. Mm-hmm. And especially since they weren't that successful together as a team. I mean, I don't think they ever won more than 45 games. The, the two and a half years that, that Marbury was in Minnesota. They were um, such a big deal. Like they were like, I, I remember um, like one of my best friends in elementary school was just, he became just like a diehard Timberwolves fan because of how fun like it was to have like Marbury setting up KG. Like, so they were, I, yeah, I mean, I, I'm trying to think of like a more, um, yeah, I mean like, yeah, Russell and Towns or Booker and Aiton or just some, some sort of like really exciting young duo that may or may not ever actually pan out together. But it's just, it's the crazy thing to me is just how, Marbury went from, you know, being this guy that was like crying on draft day and like so excited to get to play with KG. And then that that marriage uh, really, really fizzled out as they sort of there sort of seemed to be some power dynamics where KG was clearly the guy. Marbury sort of wanted to be the guy like you would have thought Uh, it given how, how good of friends they were at such a young age, like you would have thought they would have at least been able to form some sort of like Nash and Dirk type of really successful working relationship, but didn't, didn't work out that way. 
I was really surprised to see that Marbury only made two all-star games in his entire career. And, and like you said, James, he, he didn't quite hit the ground running like people thought he would. I mean, the, the numbers were actually pretty good early on, uh, but he didn't make the all-star game until 2000, 2001, that with New Jersey. And then his second one came with Phoenix in 0203, which was kind of his last totally good year before things really went off the rails in New York. Um, but I, I would have guessed that he had, he seems like one of those guys who could have made an all-star game like his second or third year in the league. Yeah, but I mean, I'm I'm guessing that like well, like Gary Payton and John Stockton and like right. like Jason Kidd and guys like that were making those teams. I mean, it, I'm sure it was still just really tough to break in as a Western Conference point guard. Yeah, especially on a team that that really wasn't winning all that much at the time. I, I like the D'Angelo Russell comp uh, for Marbury just in in terms of career path, I guess to to start their careers. Is is there another point guard who you kind of see as like this generation's version of Marbury? Um. <laughs> I, honestly, like, I, I think of guys like Sebastian Telfair, like, just in terms of, like, just how how hyped they were, like, New York City, like, really kind of fizzled out, like, had, like, off-court stuff. Um, I mean, it, it's just, like, such a crazy combination of, like, talent and craziness like right where you just you're just not going to have that long of a shelf life um but yeah russell russell definitely makes some sense but i don't think he has that sort of crazy gene that that marbury develops you, you do. He, <laughs> um i mean he he definitely has had some sort of uh interesting off-court stuff but not from uh, like a fiery standpoint, just from kind of a immaturity standpoint. What separates Marbury though, is he actually, he actually produced for the first half of his career. Like he's not, you know, Lance Stevenson's another guy from the same high school as Marbury and, and Sebastian Telfair, who, who certainly has the, the fiery side of Stefan Marbury, but Lance Stevenson was not averaging 21 and eight through his first nine NBA seasons. I mean, I, I think there's maybe, just, just kind of in terms of the numbers and the impact, maybe like a Kyrie type of parallel. Oh yeah, is, that's a good one. Is Gilbert Arenas too modern Ooh. or not modern enough? Different games, but I, I don't hate that. Yeah, I, I think there's sh- shades of Gilbert, shades of uh, Kyrie, shades of Telfair. <laughs> uh, two-time All-Star, like I said, two-time All-NBA as well. So his peaks were quite high; they just weren't necessarily sustained. Um, and I think if you do this over, you know, that Milwaukee, uh, obviously made the right call taking Ray right. Allen, but, but at the time, I, I think this was kind of viewed as a, a trade that benefited both sides. My, my number one memory of Marbury on the positive side is that, that one all-star game was that like 2000 where, uh, he was basically, it was like Marbury, uh, Kobe and like AI were just like trading off just like crazy shots in the fourth quarter um it's like one of the more competitive all-star games that i've ever seen and marbury was like clearly one of the best guys down the stretch in that game um that was that was probably like the peak of him being like one of the top guys in the league i always remember that like basically half court game winner with phoenix in the playoffs i I think that was oh three it had to be that was the only year he was in there with Phoenix. He, 
Yeah, I think that was game one against the Spurs, um, where he, he had a great start to that series. And then, you know, San Antonio kind of put its foot down and, and took care of business. But um, certainly one of the more interesting guys, kind of in that Spreewell category for me, where I, I will, for as long as I live, I will always like irrationally overrate Stefan Marbury in my mind. So at number five, Minnesota takes Ray Allen. Uh, like we said, he's traded to Milwaukee for Stefan Marbury. Uh, this comes minutes after Peter Vesey declares on national TV that the fifth pick is going to be Antoine Walker. Um, Ray Allen, of course, thinks he's going to Minnesota. He kind of has to give a a post pick interview as if he's going there. Uh, but a lot of a lot of highlighting, you know, what a what a high character guy he is. You know, he'll go anywhere. Kind of the kind of the opposite of Marbury, I guess, in that regard. And I don't think they're dogging Marbury necessarily, but um, the implication is Milwaukee felt a lot safer about Ray Allen sticking around long-term than it did some of these other guys who are projected in this range. Yeah, I guess I, I guess the first note that I have is when they list Ray Allen's weaknesses, the, the one of them, or maybe the only one, was that he's vulnerable to the post-up. Mm. It's like, uh, okay, I'm, I'm sure that will affect his career. Well, you have to, you have to remember how many like two guards were posting up back then. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's a good point. They, they also... Um, I think they also listed like ball handling as like, like a weakness, um, which I mean, I, I just like watching the replay of this draft and like watching the highlights, watching the interviews with the players, watching the strengths and weaknesses. Like it just sort of seemed like Ray Allen should have gone higher. Like they, like he just kind of looked the best on tape. He, I mean, he had like one of the most polished interviews that I can remember from like a top five pick, especially like at that time where guys were not getting coached up as much for that type of stuff. And um, like Hubie mentioned a couple times, like he was really the only one on the broadcast that was talking about the importance of like spacing and getting guys to shoot threes. Like he brought that up with Ray Allen. He brought that up with Kerry Kittles, but uh, like, where do, do you guys think of, if this draft were like this whole draft class was getting drafted today, like, do you think Ray Allen goes top three, like top two, or do you think, or do you still think that just like everyone else is like college resumes slot them over him? So you're saying not, not knowing what happened in their NBA career. Yeah. Like if everyone's just evaluating these guys based on what they did in college and like their athleticism and stuff like that. I think he'd go three. I, th- I think Iverson was such a, a big deal at the time that it's tough to imagine him slipping any lower. Um, and I think Camby, based on the era, probably still goes two. But there, yeah, there's a case for him at three. And I think if we're taking into account NBA career, where does he go in a redraft for you? If we're assuming Kobe is one, I think you're choosing between Ray Allen, Allen Iverson, and Steve Nash at number two. Um, I mean, I think Steve Nash has had the second best career of the guys from this class. But like, if you just said like, you get this guy for five years, um, like his first five years, like I would take Ray Allen's first five years over Steve Nash's first five years easily, obviously. Um, so it's just sort of depends like what you're drafting for. But, uh, I mean, I, I think, I think there's a pretty big gap between, Ray Allen and AI just in in my head I know that like from a win share standpoint AI is ahead of him but just no, from no like he's a, not 
Or no, no, never mind. Per 4080 oh. is. But, I mean, in total, Ray oh. Allen is second in win shares and second yeah. in VORP in the class. Yeah, like, I, I, I just think Ray Allen's just one of the more underrated guys. I, I think he's yeah. just really awesome at pretty much everything. Like, he, yeah, he not he's not going to be your primary ball handler. But, like, when he was with Seattle and even, like, his last year with the Bucks, um, he was still, like, a offensive focal point. He was able to get to the rim. And, like, I think he's, like, one of the more underrated athletes uh, like the past couple decades because like he could throw down on guys oh, yeah. um, pretty nastily for a guy that is thought of as one of the four best shooters of all time. Right. Never really missed time much in his career. He had a few years here and there where he would miss, you know, five or six games, but a guy that, you know, even into his mid mid to late thirties was playing 75 plus games. Uh, Alex and I talked about him a little bit on last week's pod about that ESPN top 74 list. And I think we decided that he was underrated, right, Alex? Yeah. Yeah, we thought he was a little low. Yeah, I know they I, had... I agree with that. They had him behind Reggie. I think they had him behind T-Mac and Vince and Paul Pierce, um, which those guys were close, but I, I think I think Ray Allen's peak was just so much longer than a lot of those guys. I'm I'm cool with him being behind Reggie Miller, but I, I think he's just clearly, to me, better than Pierce, Vince, T-Mac, like... I mean, I, I would have probably had Ray Allen, like, borderline top 40. Um, but I would have had Reggie Miller higher than they had him, too. Right. I mean, T-Mac and Vince especially had had higher peaks. But when you're only doing that for two years <laughs> versus Ray Allen doing 80% of that for 12 years. Did Vince have a higher peak than Ray Allen? Like, I think I would Vince's, take... like, best overall season was better than Allen's. But I think Allen put together, like, the next six best seasons. I would. I mean, is Alan Alan Sonic? He had a couple crazy years with the Sonics. His final year with the Sonics is is an all timer, and really, yeah, his last two. I guess if you take those two together, so oh five oh six and oh six oh seven, he averaged a combined twenty five point six points, four and a half rebounds, four assists, one and a half steals, forty five percent from the field, forty percent from three, ninety percent from the line. Yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe maybe with the efficiency, I. Yeah, that's where, I, I mean, just from an efficiency standpoint, I just think of him as just light years ahead of Vince. Uh, I know Vince, like, Vince had more years, I think, where he was in his prime and was the clear top guy on his team. Like, where, like, a lot of those Bucks years, Allen was kind of um, part of, like, sort of a two-and-a-half-headed monster and, and maybe didn't put up the numbers that he would have if he'd been in where Vince was playing. Yeah, very true. All right, number six. Boston Celtics take Antoine Walker, who is wearing sunglasses in the green room that yeah, are like perfectly, awesome. perfectly the size of his eyes. Like it was almost tough to tell at first because they were they just like fit perfectly in his eye sockets, kind of similar to the ones that Jordan was wearing in the last episode of uh, of the last dance at the at the parade. I think it was mm-hmm. uh, pretty wild look. Uh, great look for Antoine. Gives an, a nice kind of charming, rollicking interview afterwards. Um some of the strengths and weaknesses that they display for him strength good all-around player weakness skills need polishing so (laughs) which those just run completely contradictory um did you guys get the feel kind of looking back at this that i don't know if i'd say it's a six-player draft but i think there there's a pretty good feeling that these six guys were going to go in some order in the top six maybe you could throw one like throw someone like harry kittles in there Um, but it feels like things kind of drop off in terms of you know, the expectations for these guys. Obviously we get guys like Nash and Kobe later on who end up being even better than Antoine Walker. 
Um, but it, it feels like things could, you know, there's a little more variance, I guess, after pick number six. Yeah, it seems like they were kind of talking around that point. Like now, if it was a broadcast, you would hear, you know, the commentators right. say, people are saying this is a six player draft, but they were kind of dancing around that. But you're right. They definitely gave off that vibe. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that they, I mean, yeah, that I think Patino said something to the effect of it's kind of like a crapshoot after this. Um, I, yeah, I loved Antoine Walker's look. I mean, I, it didn't necessarily ex- inspire confidence in, in how his NBA career was going to go, but I mean, it was a great drafting look. Uh, do you guys remember Patino's comp on him uh, in the open court? Magic Johnson. Yeah. Got a nice little Magic Johnson comp on Antoine Walker in the open court. So combine that with a guy that's a low post scorer. That's, that's a tough pack, package to pass up at six. I am shocked to find out that he averaged five and a half assists at one point in his career. A Magic-esque five and a half. Well, he was one of those dudes where he would just try all kinds of crazy passes, mm-hmm. like behind the back stuff and just oh, crazy yeah. stuff. Like, I mean, I'm sure the turnovers were through the roof as well, but um, <laughs> he he had like more of a green light at, at times in his career than like almost anyone's ever had, like where he was just allowed to just check like off the dribble threes, like contested and just attempt pretty much anything he wanted to do. Yeah, he took seven and a half threes, eight threes, seven and a half threes in three straight seasons from <laughs> 01, 02, 03. And nobody was doing that at that time. What did he shoot those three seasons? <laughs> 26, 37, 34. <laughs> so all over the place. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, it, we'll never know what the true talent was. Um, I, I will say I he's, he's another guy uh, like Marbury where I'm, I'm not surprised that he didn't make more All-Star games. I mean, he ended up making three partially because he played in the East and I think it was a little easier around that time, but I mean, his first eight years in the league, at least from a pure numbers perspective, the efficiency was awful. I mean, we're talking 41% shooting 33% from three sub 70 from the line, but first seven seasons, he's at 21 points, nine rebounds, four and a half assists, one and a half steals. So the raw production, raw, raw production, I should say was always there, but he gets a title with Miami later in his career, but I don't think even when he was putting up those numbers, pretty confident that no one really viewed him as a winning player at the time. No. Um, I think that that he was in the last dance in that all-star game locker room. Um, And it's just, it's an absolutely joke of an Eastern conference roster that year. Uh, So, I mean, he he wouldn't have even made it, I don't think, in some of the weaker Eastern Conference All-Star teams like of this past decade. Like, I think that was just a, like an all-time low in terms of the bar to clear to make the Eastern Conference All-Star team. Right. Celtics missed the playoffs his first six years in the league and really didn't really didn't start getting there um, until Paul Pierce came into his own around 01, 02. Uh, at number seven, the LA Clippers take Lorenzen Wright, who was referred to as Lorenzo Wright multiple times on this telecast. Uh, he, of course, ends up being being murdered by his wife in 2010, a case that was only recently solved. There's been multiple documentaries. I think he's on a couple, like, first 48 episodes. Um, so, obviously, kind of a, a sad end to, to his career. James, this was the coach that, uh, you know, you mentioned the, uh, the Cal head coach coming on the telecast. 
I thought I, I I was watching um with the sound off for part of it. I just assumed this was like his dad or his uncle or something. And no, head coach at Memphis. This guy looked like he had just been pulled like out of bed to do a nationally televised interview on his best player. Yeah, I mean, like like I said, like he like he reminds me of just the you know those like shady characters that were like getting Sean Miller players and got yeah. tabbed in those like FBI like those guys were apparently just like coaches of college teams back in the day. Um, and like he, he's wearing like a weird fitted hat with like some weird logo on it. Like just completely outlandish look for a, like all, you know, nowadays like you, you want all your like head college basketball coaches to look all like presidential and stuff. Right. Cause they're just dealing with like donors and boosters like all the time. And, um, like they're the face of like your athletic department. But back then I think pretty much anything went. Um, do you, do you guys remember the quote about, so like Bill Fitch was the Clippers coach, I believe. And they, there was like a quote where they said, uh, Bill Fitch has locked his assistant coaches out of the war room. They like Potapinko. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that was that might have been from Bessie. Bessie was really all over the map with with his predictions of who they're going to take. Wait, so to clarify, the half of the room wanted Potapenko, but the GM wanted Lorenzen Wright. Um, I know I'm. So Bessie said, like, yeah, he locked his assistant coaches out of the war room, and then like to kind of close off his report. He, like they as the, the Clippers in general like Potapenko. Like I, I'm not exactly sure if he's talking about the assistants or not, but I just thought it was hilarious that like they had to make it known that the head coach had locked his assistant coaches out of the war I also appreciated for Wright's strengths and weaknesses. His strengths were he was athletic, he's a raw talent, and he's a hard worker. And his weaknesses were his offensive skills and turnovers, which made me wonder, what is he actually good at? You know, like, he works hard, man. They also just, kept just, they also kept harping on how much he needs to gain weight. He's 6'11", 230. That's, they, that's what Chris Bosh weighed when he played for the Heat. They said that about almost, like, unless you were, like, I, I know they didn't say it about, like, John Wallace or, like, Todd Fuller or Dampier. But, like, I think really, like, the first, like, six of the first eight guys, they said they needed to gain to add weight or add strength. <laughs> All right. Like Joe, Joe Dumars is going to eat these guys alive in the post. <laughs> yeah. 6'11, 230. I just, I started running some comparisons. Like, that's basically what Towns weighs right now. Like, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it, we've talked about this with some of the older games and older drafts that we've done. Like, it, everything was just geared towards stopping Shaq, I feel like. Well, and like, yeah, I mean, you, I guess you had like guys like Charles Oakley and like Anthony Mason that like kind of the Davises, like, but um, yeah, the Davis, the Davis brothers and stuff. But um, yeah, yeah, the Clippers at that point, woof. I mean, I'm looking at their draft history. They were they were on an incredible heater at this point, basically whiffing on like 15 ish straight picks in the first round. Um, and we're still we're still two years away from taking all the candy number one in 98. So, I mean, the peak had yet to come. All right. So at number eight, the New Jersey Nets take Carrie Kittles out of Villanova. Um, this is a, our first four year college guy 
I believe. So the first seven picks are all underclassmen. Then we get Kittles, who led Villanova to as high as number two in the country that season, which at the time was Villanova's highest ever ranking. He's the first Villanova player uh, to be drafted into the NBA in seven years. So, you know, the the collegiate powerhouse that is Villanova now uh, certainly was not the case back then. And and you kind of get the impression based on the reaction even. And of course, the draft is in New Jersey. So there's probably more Nets fans than any other fan base besides the Knicks in attendance. But uh, people seem to know who Kerry Kittles was. Like I, I got the impression that there was a, a fair amount of buzz around him based on what he'd done uh, at, in his college career. Another guy who got off to a pretty solid start. I, I think he's kind of kind of forgotten when you talk about how good this class is overall. And he's often lumped in with, you know, and I'm sure we'll get into it, the Nets being linked to Kobe and ultimately kind of being talked out of taking Kobe and, and Kittles being the guy that, that they take instead. But he puts together three, three and a half pretty good years to begin his career and then injures his knee. And it really is never the same after that. And he ends up being out of the league by age 30 in the 04-05 season, uh, spending 11 games with the Clippers and then hanging it up after that. Yeah, I mean, before hurting his knee, it was, you know, four three-point attempts a game on 38%. Was passing the ball, good steal numbers, so... Definitely a good start. And then, yeah, I think the knee injury kind of changed things. I think he would have been a really good fit in the modern game. Um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, the, he still ranks, I mean, he still ranks fairly high from this draft class in terms of the advanced stats. And is given that he had such an injury uh, shortened career, like, I mean, I think it's it's pretty clear he would have been. I think he would have finished like ahead of guys like Marbury and Canby on like all those sort of career numbers, um, advanced numbers, if he had been able to have just a, a normal, healthy career. I think he could have been like a super Danny Green. You know, so I think we look back yeah. at 09 and like Danny Green was what, a second round pick and he ends up being like sixth in VORP and win shares. Like he's, he's just, I, I think he's a guy that, you know, based on the numbers that you throw out there, Alex, I, I think he just would have been on a lot of winning teams and really was, you know, until his career ended. Yeah, good size could could switch um, probably three positions probably. So um, yeah, I thought that was a. It's funny because they were like one of the team's strong strongest link to to Kobe. So it's it's you're never going to say it was a great pick um, when they were clearly considering Kobe and passed on him. But uh, still a, a pretty solid pick given like he's sandwiched. Between Lorenzen Wright, Smocky Walker, Dampier, Todd Fuller, Vitaly Potapenko, like he's clearly better than all those guys. So um, that was pretty solid. Do you guys do you guys remember the <clears throat> when they were talking about the Nets? Do you remember the Sean the quote about Sean Bradley? No, I don't think so. Um, I think it was I can't I think it was I think it might have been Ernie who said that they've had a lot of teams coming after Sean Bradley, but teams now know enough not to ask about the storm and long. <laughs> I don't know how I missed that, but I did. Wow. <laughs> so they, they just had to kind of lay, put their foot down to, to the teams that were coming, coming to call about Sean Bradley. Look, we're not giving up Sean, man. <laughs> He's, at this point, Sean Bradley was coming off of a nine and a half point eight rebound season. So it makes sense. 45% yeah. from the field for a guy who's 7'6". Um, that's, that's crazy. Yeah. Four, he shot, mid, four, he shot like 45 for his career. Much, 
always always in the mid 40s and he's seven six that's insane oh man um so the nets had, at this point have just hired coach cal who was at umass coach marcus camby capitalizes on that takes the nets job after it sounds like at least patino turned him down and like you said james he, he ultimately ends up in boston i think a year or two later they bring cal onto the telecast uh later in the draft right after the eric dampier pick at number 10 and cal and patino especially young cal like Honestly, in this draft, like Patino reminded me a lot of what would happen if they brought Calipari on to a draft today to be a full-time guy. Like a lot of just like the witty quips, you know, kind of taking subtle shots at people, but never quite going too far, pushing the envelope a little bit. Um, You know, Calipari has been on draft telecast before just to talk about Kentucky guys being drafted, but I could totally see him doing this, uh, doing what Patino did for a modern draft. Yeah, that'd be a pretty good fit. I mean, he... He loves to talk. He loves right. to like. I, I know when we we used to go to the combine, um, uh, he would always kind of like hold court at the combine for like. We just have a bunch of reporters like run up to him, and he would just happily stand there and like ask questions or answer questions all day. So, um, I mean, he he would make all those classic coach jokes, like the Patino coach jokes about like, well. Yeah, I tried to get him to come back and like I was glad I was glad to get him out of the SEC, like all that all those coach jokes. Yeah. So I, I think he was joking that he called he called Samaki Walker at Louisville and told him to leave because yeah. Denny Crum, Denny Crum had called and told Antoine Walker to leave. Yeah, good you know, that's a, that's classic that hijinks. Um so you you kind of mentioned that Kobe had been linked to the Nets at eight, and I, I think Cal really wanted Kobe. And the story goes that essentially Kobe and his representation had made it known that he didn't want to play in New Jersey. Uh, I, I don't know if at this time L.A. was really the, like had he had he zoned in that it was the Lakers and only the Lakers, you know, for a guy who in this Jackie McMullen mock draft, he's projected to go 19th. You know, it, it's not like he's sliding down the board at this point. He, he really doesn't have all that much leverage. But from what I could find at the time, Kobe was threatening if he went to a team that he didn't like, he was just going to go play in Italy for a year and kind of like re-enter the draft or play it out until he's a free agent, something like that. And basically New Jersey at the end of the day decided that they didn't want to deal with that trouble and ends up taking Kerry Kittles. And, you know, Charlotte takes Kobe at 13 and by the end of the draft, he ends up being traded to the Lakers. So even if he didn't have that much leverage, Kobe was still in enough of a position of power apparently to, to force that trade to LA over the course of like two hours. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's surprising, honestly, that more players don't do stuff like this. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of clear when you when you listen to this draft that the two guys that I, I think teams were high on and just didn't have the balls to take them where they needed to were Kobe and Steve Nash. Like they, there was yeah. a somebody said earlier in the draft, like the the Timberwolves are coveting Steve Nash. So, like, it, it seems like they were going to find a way to get Steve Nash if they couldn't get Marbury. Uh, you had just everyone, basically, anytime Kobe got brought up, everyone just had glowing things to say about his game. Like, I, I don't think anyone thought of him as just this guy that was a high-risk, like, bust candidate. Like, everyone liked Kobe. It seemed like most teams like Steve Nash. And with Kobe being the high school guy and Nash being just like a shorter point guard from a small school, I don't think they had the guts to take him where they probably yeah. should have been 
putting them on their boards. Yeah, I mean, two quotes for Kobe. At one point, I, I think it was Hubie said, people are saying he's destined for greatness. And then someone else said there's no weaknesses in his game. Yeah. I was like, this guy goes 13th? Right. Like, yeah. Well, I mean, well, I think it worked against him that he was 17. Whereas today, the, the younger, the better. I mean, were there any weaknesses in Todd Fuller's game, though? <laughs> no, I well, we'll get to Todd Fuller, but I love that the first graphic they display, like for most guys, it's like two-time All-SEC, reigning ACC Defensive Player of the Year. His was academic All-ACC. Yeah, right. wow. That, that matters. <laughs> All right, so at nine, Dallas goes Samaki Walker. Incredibly, incredibly uh, high-level fit from Samaki Walker. Probably the fit of the night, at least to this point in the draft, has like a kind of like, like a white top hat that's somewhere between like an Abe Lincoln hat and a cowboy hat, kind of a mix of those Craig, two, but not quite Craig a fedora. Sager, Craig Sager described it as a derby hat. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I mean, as that he went to Louisville, maybe there's a Kentucky Derby tie-in. I mean, it was the exact same type of hat that um, everyone's wearing in the Chappelle show, Player Haters Ball sketch. <laughs> yes, exactly, <laughs> which it basically looks like he came straight out of and as he gets up from the green room to uh, walk to the stage, like his mother or his grandmother t- tries to like grab the hat. And it was basically like, don't go up there with that on. And he ignores it and, and walks right up there. Um, this one's pretty much our first like major bust from the start, right? Well, I mean, they called him underrated. So, I mean. <laughs> I'm going to call him a bust. I don't care. <laughs> he was, was god awful. I I still I think people still think of him as I mean he was on those a couple of those really good Lakers teams and started 63 games in 0102 when the Lakers were were still very much in their heyday but uh, I mean he was out of Dallas within 3 years at the expiration of of that first rookie deal and I I don't think people realize like how bad the Mavs were at this time so maybe it wasn't entirely his fault um, but the Mavs beginning in, in the first year of the 90s these these are their progressive win totals through the end of the decade 28, 22, 11, 13, 36, 26, 24, 20, 19. What was, when did the Jason Kidd, uh, Jim, Jim Jackson, Jamal Mash, am I, am I remembering that right? Those three? Um, so that was just before this season because they, they end up talking about that at the end of the Walker pick, right? I'm, I'm surprised that those teams, like the, I thought those teams were a little better, but um, obviously not if they had the ninth pick. But um. well, they won 36 the year before, which was obviously their high of the 90s, and they, I think they end up trading Jim Jackson shortly after the draft. So they, they allude on the telecast to this controversy surrounding the quote-unquote three J's: Jim Jackson, Jamal Mashburn, and Jason Kidd. And from what I was able to dig up, there were, quote, unsubstantiated rumors pointing to a love triangle between Kidd, Jackson, and singer Tony Braxton that oh, led, that led okay. to this alleged rift. Yeah, yeah. That'll, that'll do it. That's, uh, that'd, that'd be a pretty juicy love triangle if it happened uh, in this era. I have to admit, I don't really know who Tony Braxton is. Who's like a, a relatively modern day equivalent of Tony Braxton? She was like, so this was like an era where like Whitney Houston and like Mariah Carey were probably like the two main like pop divas of the day. But like Tony Braxton was kind of like right behind them. Like she she had some 
But, I mean, she would. She was like an A-list like music celebrity at this okay. time. It's like a, like a Demi Lovato. Like, Something like, like not that. Not quite Beyonce, yeah, I mean, but like it, tier below. Yeah, I can I can describe her to you, but I can't really give you any modern day caps. Okay, fair enough. Let's move on to number ten. This is the Indiana Pacers received this pick from the Denver Nuggets. They take Eric Dampier out of Mississippi State. Um, I actually really like his suit. It's a very '90s look, but uh, kind of like a bright red and white combination that he has going on. It actually fits him fairly well compared to. Some of the other guys um, who are sitting in the green room. I don't really have a lot to say about Dampier. I mean, this ends up being just kind of like the ultimate average pick. He, you know, he he leaves Indiana after one season. Um, so many guys in these in these '90s and early 2000s drafts are are traded really early in their careers, like just kind of given up on early. But ends up being okay in Golden State. Signs a, a kind of a mega deal around the turn of the century, um, and then has a pretty nice run as kind of the the longtime starter. Uh, but never a guy who who overachieved in Dallas, but not a terrible pick at number 10. You know, of course, should have taken Kobe, should have taken Peja, should have taken Nash. But uh, I don't think Dampier was was anywhere near the level of a bust of like Samaki Walker or the guy who went after him. Yeah, this feels like a spot where Jermaine O'Neal should have gone. But again, coming out of, you know, being so young and I don't I don't think teams wanted to to take that risk, but you're right. Dampier had a good career as someone who was always just kind of there, like always putting in good role player minutes for winning teams. So I, I don't really have too many notes on him other than that. Cause he just had a solid career. I mean, I think he got like a, didn't the, didn't Cuban give him like a $60 million contract at one point? Like, I mean, he pretty successful, um, pretty successful run for a guy from this the spot in the draft. And he almost made a he almost made a hundred million dollars in the NBA. It's pretty solid. Yeah, and he ends up being the key piece traded to Golden State to get Chris Mullen, who, you know, at that point in his career was well past his prime, but still ends up being a, a key bit piece for some of those good Pacers teams at the end of the nineties. So at eleven, we get probably the biggest bust of the entire draft in terms of production versus where they were picked. Todd Fuller out of NC State, played five seasons in the NBA, only 225 games in that span. It started 18 times as a rookie, but the plug was pulled pretty early on him, and he was out of Golden State after two years and out of the league by 2001. The only note I have on him is Craig Sager during the interview says, you're a math major. The Warriors only won 36 games last year. <laughs> 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 Get out That's your like, no, you're, you're a comedian tell me a joke yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i got nothing on todd fuller i mean it's, it's one of those picks that obviously we know how it turned out when we're watching this but you're watching this guy like walk up the ramp onto the onto the stage and it's just like he has no chance this was over before right. it started yeah yeah and this I, is where we we're definitely in this range where it's like Okay, the Kobe Bryant and Steve Nash like glowing praise throughout this draft, and we're still gonna we're still <laughs> gonna go through this this rigmarole of taking taking these guys who are clearly not gonna be anything. I, I will say there was a fair amount of complimentary things said about the guy who went twelve to Cleveland, Vitali Potapenko <laughs> or Potapenko, who I, I was shocked to find out he went to Wright State. Like I would have bet a significant portion of my life savings that he was drafted straight out of Europe, but 
did a tour in the Horizon League for Wright State, uh, the Ukraine train, as they refer to him multiple times. And we're still drafting for need at number 12. Yeah. Cavs take Potapico because Brad Doherty just retired. <laughs> he, I was surprised to learn. Yeah, I was surprised to learn Potapenko played 11 years in the NBA. That is pretty shocking. He had a sneaky, okay career. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think he ended up being one of those guys that every team kept trying to give him chances because the 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 difference between what you saw on tape from Europe and in college was just, you know, one of those things where it's so drastically different than what happens in the NBA. It's just confusing. So every team figures like, well, we can be the guy to bring this guy in. And uh, for 11 years and 610 games, they they tried. The thing with him, I... I just I don't get the appeal. Like it's not like he's super young, and we've talked about how that wasn't really valued as much at this point as it is now. But he's 21 as a rookie. They're talking about how he weighed like 320 pounds at the start of the college season. He's only 6'10. I mean, he's not 7'5. And one of his weaknesses is quote not a leaper. He's incapable of leaping. Like where where's the value going to come? And he shot uh, 17% from three for his career. Um, so yeah. Yeah, that one, uh, that one went about as expected, I think. Um, at 13, the Charlotte Hornets pulled the trigger on Kobe Bryant. I know you, you mentioned how impressive Ray Allen's interview was, James. I think Kobe had the best interview of anyone on the telecast, and he's 17 years old at this point. Yeah, uh, obviously not surprising, kind of given his background. I mean, he was always pretty good with the media basically from day one mm-hmm. um yeah i i wonder i mean i will never know but i i really do wonder like how real his bluffs were about you know what if what if the mavs had drafted him what if the pacers had drafted him what if the warriors had drafted him what if the Cavs had drafted him like what if the hornets had not traded him like i just think he was so dead set on because like he mentioned, like they were like, "Why didn't you want to go to college?" And he was like, "Well, I didn't want to look back when I'm like 40 years old and say that I like wasted a year in college when I could have been in the NBA." Like, just from that quote alone, like I don't really buy the idea that he would have gone to play in in Italy. Um, so I think I really just think one of these teams should have called his bluff. I think that's spot on. I, I wasn't able to find anything definitive. I, d- I don't know if Kobe has really spoken on that since. It's really it's not something that was brought up much, you know, especially once he really came into his own in the 2000s. I think he kind of moved past it and it just just wasn't that much of a storyline. Um, but it was funny. I thought that they asked him, so why the NBA, Kobe? It's like, sh- shouldn't it be the other way around? Like, shouldn't you be asking somebody like, why not the NBA? Or why would you go to college? When you could be an NBA lottery pick, They're they're just questioning like, you're crazy, man. What are you thinking? <laughs> I don't know. I think there may have still just been a perception where it's like, okay, you know, Kobe, you're probably going to go outside of the top 10. So what's the point of even coming in the draft when you could be going to college or Italy and then get drafted potentially top five? When if you're, if you're Kobe, you're like, <laughs> if I'm going, if I'm going between 10 and 20, why would I, why would I not do it? I think like I let's talk about Jermaine O'Neal really quick, just since they both came out of high school. Like he's he's one of the very, very, very few guys where 
I just think it's it's so clear that he would have benefited from actually going to college. Like Rick Pitino was talking about how he recruited Jermaine O'Neal real hard. And like we talked on that when we did that Blazers rewatch about he was like it was his fourth year in the league and he was still barely playing for the Blazers. Like I just think Jermaine O'Neal like if you if he goes to Kentucky for a year or two, like he's probably what a top five pick whenever he comes out, and he he probably goes somewhere where they have enough invested in him to let him play early on. So, like obviously with Kobe, guys like that, you're you're coming out, and there's no reason not to. But Jermaine O'Neal, I think, is is one of the rare cases where it was probably a mistake for him to come out. Right. None of the glowing things that we hear about Kobe are said about Jermaine O'Neal. Like he's talked about like he's much more of a crapshoot than Kobe, even though they're technically in the same situation and were probably similarly dominant at the high school level. There doesn't seem to be this natural confidence in O'Neal. And that's borne out when he goes one pick before the Knicks back to back picks and the place erupts like the Knicks had no interest in Jermaine <laughs> yeah. O'Neal. They were glad yeah. he was off the board. <laughs> well, they got their guys. Yeah. So, so Kobe ends up being traded to Charlotte, basically straight up for Vlade Divac, which I don't think is that bad of a deal because at that point, Vlade is 27 years old. He's put together some pretty strong years as like a, a really good role player for the Lakers. He ends up making an all-star team uh, a few years later. So, you know, we've talked about kind of the lack of leverage that Kobe had and ultimately he ended up gaining that leverage. But considering the fact that he basically told Charlotte, I'm not playing for you and they whether he was going to be serious about it or not, they they ended up taking him seriously. So the Hornets don't have a ton of leverage, and they're still able to get a borderline all-star guy in Divac for a guy in Kobe who, you know, at the time, obviously he had the potential, but it's not like it's not like he was a guy who's just going to walk in and average 25. So I, I actually think this ended up being an okay deal for Charlotte at the time. Yeah, it's about as good as you can do, right? I mean... And Kobe didn't even, I mean, Kobe didn't average 20 points a game until his fourth year in the league. You know, his rookie year was basically as bad as anyone's rookie year. Like, who goes, you know, not, you know, it wasn't horrible, but it's seven and a half points a game on 41% shooting. Like, the first year of that trade, you know, I'm sure Charlotte and Charlotte fans were like, okay, good stuff. And then, you know, a couple years later, you start to sweat about it a little bit. (laughs) Also, I mean, just to, you know, a, a testament to how good Jerry West was at like, you know, that's a, the, the Hornets obviously drove a pretty hard bargain there. And he was still that, um, that confident in his evaluation on Kobe that he was willing to do it. So at 14 to round out the lottery, Sacramento takes Peja Stojakovic. Uh, his haircut is alarming. I had never seen, <laughs> I had never seen this before. I mean, you just kind of think of him as the, clean cut side part guy that he was for most of his career with the Kings. He has like the quintessential nineties, like sitcom guy haircut. And because of that, uh, how much hair is on his head, he has to kind of prop his draft hat up, which draws a comparison to of all people, Dale Earnhardt. (laughs) I just, I mean, it makes me wonder if he had ever seen a snapback before. Like, cause both he and Zadrunas Ilgauskas it looked like they just were given a hat, the snapback at like maximum tightness and just tried to jam it onto their head uh, <laughs> without like adjusting it at all. So that was, that was definitely weird. The the video of his highlights were like, it, it looked, it honestly looked like it, you know, like some, 
NBA highlights from like the sixties or something. Like, like he looked like he was like a 35 year old guy, like playing in some gym in like the sixties or seventies. Like those, those highlights were insane. And like none of the highlights, like, I think he shot like one jumper and it was like a 15 footer. Like he is one of the better three point shooters of all time. And like all of his highlights are just of him, like kind of going to the rack. Yeah, I have that in my notes, too. All they're talking about is, you know, this guy can space the floor. He's got great size. He's an incredible shooter. And as they're saying all these things, we're watching him just, like, run in for fast break layups. <laughs> His, the first highlight was, I don't know what the guy on the other team was doing. He he was just like, like you said, James, it looked like it was straight out of the 60s. Like, he, he was dribbling the ball like Stanley Hudson at the top of the key and just, like, falls over. And Stoyakovich just grabs it and runs down for a layup. Like, that was the first highlight we see of this guy. For most of the country probably the first time they'd ever seen Peja Stoyakovic, and that's how they're introduced to him. Where do you think he falls in this draft overall? I, I think for me, he's certainly in Tier 2. I think Kobe, Allen, Iverson, and Nash uh, make up Tier 1, but I think you could start to debate Stoyakovic versus Camby, Marbury, guys like Antoine Walker, Jermaine O'Neal. Um, you know, his peak season or, or seasons, there, there weren't really all that many of them, but uh, second in the league in scoring one year in Sacramento, three straight all-star teams from 02 to 04, uh, took, took a little bit to get going and, and didn't have the longest peak, but, you know, for a good five year span was, you know, arguably the first or second most dangerous shooter in the NBA. Yeah. I mean, kind of a heck of his time in that respect, like someone who would definitely be drafted higher these days. Um, yeah, I don't, it's hard to say. Yeah, he's he's definitely second tier with with Camby Marbury. Like he's definitely better than Abdul Rahim, better than Walker. So I think he's kind of he he does kind of fall in in that tier. Um, just from a you know overall stats, career success uh, standpoint, I think it I think it makes sense to lump him in with with those guys. So we get outside the lottery at pick number fifteen. The Phoenix Suns take Steve Nash who ends up fourth in VORP in this class, second in win shares per 48. James, I, I have a sneaking suspicion that he might go number two for you in a redraft, knowing what happened for these players' entire careers. Yeah, either one or two. <laughs> um, Got no, more I mean, MVPs I, than Kobe. I love, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I love Ray Allen's career, um, but I mean, I think Nash's peak, uh, certainly a lot higher. Um, I thought it was, and I actually didn't even, I don't know if I ever knew this or if I never knew this, but, uh, like Danny Ainge, like that, was that probably his first draft pick ever as a GM? I thought Danny Ainge was the coach. He was the coach. He was the coach. That was another weird thing about this draft. They kept like talking about the coaches, like, do you remember many general managers getting cited at all other than Isaiah Thomas or Jerry West? Like it was basically a lot of talk of like Mike Cortello, Bill Fitch, like Danny Ainge. Like it was like, it was like the coaches were basically doing the draft. Yeah. And so, yeah. Lenny Wilkins got some love as well. But I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure like Danny Ainge like had a pretty decent say in that pick. Yeah, you would think. I, I mean, I don't know a ton about Danny Ainge's game. I would imagine maybe he saw some of himself in Nash, who I believe they compared to a poor man's John Stockton. Yes. 
which I, th- I think all things considered a pretty good comp. I mean, he probably ended up having a higher ceiling than John Stockton. I, Stockton obviously uh, did it for much longer than Nash did, but you know, Stockton, as we talked about on the pod last week, Alex, I, I don't think he ever finished higher than seventh or eighth in MVP voting. So just consistently very good for a long time. Whereas Nash was legitimately great for a few years uh, in the mid two thousands. Um, and at this point, this is an, another pick for need because Kevin Johnson has announced that the next season will be his last. So you have Steve Nash in to take over. And of course he ends up being traded from Phoenix after the 97, 98 season goes to Dallas from 98 through 04, then back to Phoenix where he really turns into the Steve Nash. I think that we remember today. And I thought it was interesting. One of the weaknesses on his graphic was too selective with his shot which is something that really ended up following him throughout his entire NBA career. And and he personally has reflected on it a number of times. Yeah. I always thought that was something that kind of like was a, a complaint of people later on, uh, like either in his prime or in his post prime where people say, Oh, he should have took more shots. I didn't realize it had been basically following him since before he got drafted. Yeah, I think, well, I think like his greatest strength, really is like his unselfishness i mean other than his his shooting efficiency but um you know i mean when you're whenever you're like as good at shooting like i mean lebron got dogged for this a lot early in his career like whenever you're like the best scorer arguably on your team but you're also like the most unselfish player on your team it's it's definitely like kind of a Mm -hmm. uh you you know lose lose or however you want to frame it like but i I mean I, i don't think Nobody, when he was winning MVPs, was complaining about him not shooting enough. Uh, there might have been times in playoff series where he maybe was not as selfish as he should have been. Um, but, I mean, that that's what makes that, that question about, like, if we're doing a redraft, like, you know, he, it took him a while to get going, whereas, like, Ray Allen was pretty much awesome right away. Uh, so it's it just sort of depends what the parameters of the reject are because mm-hmm. and it you know situational too like he got to play i mean the, the mavs offense and that sun's offense were two of the more up-tempo offenses of that entire decade like if he never finds himself in dallas or in phoenix if he just like ends up languishing in like crappy situations i mean he might never become like even an all-star like i, I don't even know if that's out of the realm of possibility that he could have just never maxed out if he hadn't been given the opportunity to. Yeah. I mean, he, he'd only had two all-star appearances at age 30 and as a guy that really hit his peak in ages 32, 33 is, is when he was winning MVPs in Phoenix. It is just astonishing though, to look at the shooting efficiency numbers and see that he's only taking in some cases like, three and a half threes a game on 45%. You know, I mean, he had a year where he shot 47% from three on 4.7 attempts. And then you can make the case that part of the reason he shot so, so well is because he was really selective with those attempts, but you kind of see what Curry came along and did 10 years later. And he basically did exactly what Nash was doing, but doubled the, the number of three point attempts. And obviously that ends up increasing his points per game by about 10 more than what Nash was putting up at his peak. Yeah, I mean, people have touched on this, but uh, his shot form, like, and and his shot release, like, he was 
he could have taken more threes. Like he's been open about that. And if you, if you go back and watch those games from like the Mavs and the Suns, he definitely passes up pretty clean looks from three, especially if it's like early in the clock and then the half court. But he was never going to be a guy that could get shots off the way that Steph got shots off or like even like Kyrie. Like, I mean, he just, his shot needed, he needed to kind of get into the release a little bit. So there were definitely times when he could have, where the defense would have let him shoot threes and he should have taken them. But it's not like one of those things where he could have just been ISOed with his guy and like done a couple dribbles and just let rip from like 30 feet. I don't think his shot was really built that way. So at 16, Charlotte is on the clock again after taking Kobe. At 13, they go Tony Delk out of Kentucky, one of three. Wildcats taken in the first round of this draft. He's the first guy who's not there on site, um, was not invited. And another player who ends up being traded early in his career. He's traded after one season to Golden State and kind of ends up just shuffling around and is, is never really more than a, a seventh or eighth man um, for, for most of his career. So I, I don't really know a whole lot about Tony Delk. I think he was a player who was probably more celebrated for his accomplishments at Kentucky than he ever was in the NBA. Do you guys have any notes? I remember he had a 50-point game. What? Um, yeah, I want to say it was 50. I mean, definitely high 40s. Like, he he had a couple of years where he would just randomly be on bad teams where he could kind of just gun. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, never, never a star on his teams, but there were certain situations where I think he was given the, the green light to um, – to chuck it up, uh, trying to dig up that. Uh, oh, I, I got it. This is an incredible, incredible line. 53 points on 20 of 27 shooting, 0 of 1 from 3, 0 assists in 50 <laughs> minutes of play. <laughs> That's awesome. The list of guys who've gone for 50 with 0 assists has to be tiny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and did, did you say 0 of 1 from 3? 0 of 1 from 3. 13 of so, 15 at the line. How many guys have gone for 50 points with zero assists and zero threes? Like that might, he might be the only one in that club. I will attempt to do some digging as we continue here. So we can skip past Portland at 17. We already talked about Jermaine O'Neal. We hit on him extensively um, in that Blazers rewatch that we did as well. So not much to say there. That brings us to the Knicks at 18 and 19. They hold back-to-back picks. They also have the 21st pick in this draft. Like I said at the top, there's talk of them maybe packaging these picks and trying to get someone like Charles Barkley. There's also a lot of talk about the Knicks signing Allen Houston because, guys, they have a lot of cap room. They have upwards of $9 million in cap space (laughs) at this point. Oh, man. I mean, they, uh, yeah, these, when I heard that there was a trio of Knicks uh, picks coming up, I just knew it was not going to be good. Like, they, they pretty much, they blew all three of them. Like, <laughs> incredible. Yeah. And the best, the best part was, uh, you know, the the, and now the analysts didn't like the the third one. Um, they were not a fan of the Dante Jones pick. But like everyone was kind of riding high on like, man, they got Wallace and McCarthy. Like, what? <laughs> like, like this is kind of like turning into the Knicks draft, getting those two guys to fall <laughs> into their lap. Like they, everyone was really high on it at the time. Oh, yeah. The place went nuts. Like, there was a We Want Wallace chant after Jermaine O'Neal 
went 17 to Portland. Knicks fans really wanted him. He's a Syracuse guy, so that's part of it. Kind of the same thing that we saw with uh, with Johnny Flynn when he got drafted by Minnesota. Like everybody just goes nuts for a Syracuse guy, but they keep talking about how he he interviewed like so poorly that he's sliding in the draft, and he's he's there on site, you know. So he expected to go higher. He's kind of the one guy who really genuinely slides in this draft, and he ends up just being a total disaster. Like you said, Alex, they they go a complete 0 for three on the 18th, 19th, and 21st picks. The 19th pick was funny, Walter McCarty, because basically, like, the first two things the commentators really say, I think Patino says McCarty is a 10-star person on a 5-star scale, which was just, what does that even mean? And then uh, someone says that he can do a Stevie Wonder impression better than Stevie Wonder. And then Patino said that. So Patino absolutely going all out with whatever these kinds of analogies are and then mccarty later sang for craig sager what song possibly describes how you feel right now because even though time's got a rough and you never turned away you were right there and i thank you walter mccarty (laughs) obviously right at home inside the garden or outside on broadway congratulations good luck in new york so that was just an incredible stretch of like three minute analysis so the the ten star person on a five star scale quote is an incredible quote just by itself. It becomes so ironic because earlier this year, while serving at the head coach uh, as the head coach at Evansville University, uh, Walter McCarty was fired because of sexual assault allegations. Jesus Christ! Ten star man. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I mean, hey, he might not have turned into a bad dude until later. He might have might have been a ten star guy when he was at Kentucky. Um, <laughs> like, what, what has there, like, I know Victor Oladipo's been, like, he, he's gotten some some singing in at times, but, like, <laughs> can, you, can you imagine if, like, a, if a first-round pick just started singing at the end of the track? I think now it would have to be rapping, which would be even weirder. Sure. <laughs> like, Damien, why don't you spit some bars for us here? <laughs> Oh, we hear you can rap. Uh, what do you got? <laughs> I'll give you a beat. <laughs> uh, so I, I talked about the Knicks cap space, which is a huge theme in this draft. They, it's noted that they want Reggie Miller, but he's expected to re-sign with Indiana, which he does. Jawan Howard was maybe on the table. He ends up, um, I think, re-signing with Washington at this point. Uh, maybe Denver. I don't, I don't remember. And, and then Alan Houston, who is off to a really good start in Detroit. And they end up getting Allen Houston, um, who, who has a really nice, you know, long career as a very good player with the Knicks. But uh, it's just funny to hear that number thrown around. Like nine million dollars is, I mean, in, I guess in today's NBA would be the equivalent of having like thirty million in cap space. I also have an update on the Tony Delk situation, guys. Tony Delk is one of three players since like old times, basically post Chamberlain to go for 50 with zero assists and zero threes. The other two are Moses Malone and Bernard King in 87 and 84. So he's the only player since 1987 to do that. That's awesome. <laughs> that's, that's, that's great. I, uh, yeah, I remember, I mean, I, I just remember it because of how crazy it was. Like, yeah, I mean, there's, there've been some pretty, um, surprising 50 point games over the years, but, it's usually someone like Jamal Crawford who's like actually good, 
but not like a superstar. And Tony Duff was just kind of a, like you said, like a seventh man. Yeah, this is in the Corey Brewer zone, I think. Oh yeah, Corey Brewer, yeah. Um, so, real quickly, here are the guys to go for fifty with zero assists, but they did hit threes. And this is since Tony Delk. And all these are like, yep, yep, yep. Kobe Bryant, Michael Red, Carmelo Anthony, Kevin Love, Carmelo Anthony, Isaiah Thomas, Clay Thompson. Is the most <laughs> surprising of those Kevin Love not having any assists? Strangely, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> That's right, still so, uh, crazy to go to have zero assists and, and get 50. Like, a, like, just think about like the dynamics of a basketball game when you're like in, you're like that on fire. Like clearly guys are going to be running at you from all directions and you, you can't not one assist. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't even have to be that. Like you're just, most of these guys are playing 40 plus minutes other than clay. Yeah. Everybody's playing at least like 37 minutes. Some Kevin Love played 49 minutes in that game. Like you don't luck into one assist, like especially the way that, like he's the outlet passer, you know, you just think like the way that they hand out assists in the NBA too, like you don't even have to work that hard to get an assist. Yeah. The, the Tony Delt club. <laughs> Quickly on the, on the Dante Jones pick, like, you know, all three of those Knicks picks were bad, but uh, they, they said Dante Jones has a screw in his toe that needs to be straightened out. Like what? <laughs> I couldn't tell if Hubie meant straighten out, like literally straighten it out, or they need to like figure out how to deal. Like, like, is he gonna be okay? Like, I, I don't. There was something to do with a a screw in right. his in his yeah. foot that was like an issue at the time. <laughs> so, so Ernie Johnson, like right after the Knicks picked Dante Jones at twenty one, Ernie, you know, being the host and kind of has to kick it to Hubie and Patino, and like his setup question is. Well, the Knicks get Jones at 21, and doesn't he have a screw in one of his feet that may be coming loose? Like, just a horrible setup, and they're like, yeah, I think he does. And he ends up missing his entire rookie season. He's traded after his rookie season, plays 91 minutes in Boston the next year, never plays again. (laughs) That's, look, that's, uh, he was worth the risk. All right, so we can zoom through these final uh, 10 picks. One more note on Dante Jones, by the way, and actually, no, let's start with, we'll go back to 20. So Cleveland takes a Junis Ogowskis at number 20. He is there. He's on site. So they show him in the green room. The pick is announced. He's immediately kissed on the cheek by a man with a mullet. (laughs) Unclear who that man is. It doesn't appear to be his father. Um, He's there with like just two anonymous European men. Um, So the Cavs at this point have have bankrolled Potapico at 12 and Ogowskis at 20. So they're, they're all set with Brad Doherty retired. Um, and so Junis Ilgowskis actually ends up being arguably the best value pick in this draft in terms of production. Um, 14 points, nine rebounds, 1.6 blocks as a rookie ends up having a foot injury or kind of a recurrence of a foot injury that, that had already plagued him from before the draft, uh, but still managed to make two all-star games despite missing significant time early in his career. So I, I think that ends up being a really productive pick at 20 New York takes Dante Jones at 21 and I forget who says it on the telecast, but right away they say, well, the Knicks were hoping to get Ogowskis here. They just had the previous two picks. Why would you not take (laughs) Ogowskis at 18 or 19? Those are some things you just can't explain. I mean, John Wallace fell into their lap. So I mean, you can't, can't yeah, yeah, you have to take Wallace at 18, of course. But (laughs) I, I mean, I guess McCarty was just, 
so much higher on their board. It was unclear if Ilgauskas was able to do any Stevie Wonder impersonations. Ilgauskas having his number retired by the Cavs, though. I mean, you have to have a decent career to do that. And I know, I mean, that was a lot of like LeBron. Like he was around with LeBron and got, uh, you know. Didn't they do it right after LeBron left? Like it was, I remember them doing it as like a, we need to raise everybody's spirits here a little bit type of gesture. Yeah, I think that sounds right. Um, I don't like doing that because it sets a really dangerous precedent. It's like everybody who is at least as good as Ogowskis now has to get their number retired. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. But I don't know. I mean, I think that's fine. He, he made two all-star games. He played with Cleveland like his entire career, you know, was there with LeBron. I don't know. It's okay, but it's still pretty, uh, pretty sketchy. So at 22, Vancouver takes Roy Rogers out of Alabama, who Hubie describes as somebody who could play small forward or big forward. Uh, he also, in his interview, says that he never wants to be a coach. It's too much work. He has been an NBA assistant for over 10 years. <laughs> he said, uh, well, they said, what do you, where do you see yourself in like five to 10 years? And he said, <laughs> working in a front office. So like he was, he was totally down with the idea of his NBA career not lasting 10 years. <clears throat> um, yeah, they, they really where, focused on his academic accomplishments as well. Where has he been an assistant? All over the place. Um, let me see. I, I, it was like G League. He was he was one of those guys who like his first like three coaching spots were all teams that I had never even heard of. Uh, but he, I think he was with Chicago most recently. I want to say. Anyway, twenty three, Denver takes the guy that Hubie had been really waiting to come off the board for most of the night. Ftimi Rencius. No reaction whatsoever when the pick is announced. This is the first pick of the night that draws not, nothing. Like, there's just no noise whatsoever from the crowd. Like, completely neutral. Which is funny because, I mean, nobody, it's not like anybody's on their phone. You know what I mean? Like, everyone just kind of looks at each other, I guess. And yeah. It's like, okay. And they just sit and wait for another one. Yep. So he ends up coming over in 0203 to play 35 games for the Sixers. That's it. He's a, a complete zero. Uh, the guy who was supposed to replace Dikembe in Denver. Um, at 24, the Lakers take Derek Fisher. Um, a, a pretty good pick, obviously, based on, on who Derek Fisher became, um, and especially based on the quality of players that are going at this point in the draft. Uh, but not a lot to say about him. We get Martin Mersep to Utah at 25. I pretty sure the only player to ever have back-to-back use in his name and you can just tell by, by the way david stern says it he's like extremely skeptical of who this guy is and all three of the broadcast guys just completely tap out and say we have no idea who this guy is and they just they just move on <laughs> <laughs> love it <laughs> um 26 detroit takes jerome williams the junkyard dog not damari carroll the original junkyard dog from georgetown 27, Orlando takes Brian Evans, who's described as slow of foot. Uh, at 28, Atlanta takes somebody named Priest Lauderdale out of Central State. Do you remember this guy at all, James? I do remember the name. I, I think, um, I just, I mean, how could you not remember that name? Yeah, but insane I, name. I don't, I don't remember what he looks like or anything. So he's the only priest in NBA history. Seven foot four, 
only played 13 games in college, then hightailed it over to Greece to to play for a while before being drafted. Um, I actually, I don't know if you guys even made it this far into the draft. It was a long telecast, but his highlights were actually pretty impressive for a guy who's 7'4", like 350 pounds. Like it, it looked like he moved fairly well. And, you know, based on how long he played, he played well into his 30s overseas. Not somebody that ended up being hampered by injuries, really. I'd, I mean, I'm sure he had some shortcomings that that didn't show up in a highlight tape. But for the most part, I, I was kind of surprised that he washed out as fast as he did. Yeah, they yeah. were able to hype him up a little bit. So, yeah, and the highlights look solid. Uh, I'll be honest. They didn't make it this far. Okay. I appreciate your honesty. Um, <laughs> let's just look at the second round real quickly, and then we'll we'll wrap things up. Not not a ton of of great value. At this point, uh, Moochie Norris, I think, is worth noting. He goes 33 to Milwaukee. He's a guy that they they mention uh, really killed it in the pre-draft workouts and shot up the board. He's out of the University of West Florida. Jeff McGinnis goes 37 to Denver. Malik Rose, 44 to Chicago. Mark Pope, 52 to Indiana. I, no one else really jumps out to me. <laughs> Nobody at all. This is an extremely weak second round. The, the only thing I was going to say earlier um, is just that, uh, like, really impressive by Jerry West to get the number one guy in win shares and the number 11 guy in win shares with just the 24th pick um, and Vladi Debatch. All right. Anything else you guys have? No, not really. Oh, I did. I did have. Um, well, one quick thing, like, this was a huge draft for the SEC. Uh, they had, like, five or six guys go in the first round, but there were only two ACC guys. So, like, definitely a, a different time in college hoops. And then uh, I forgot to mention we were talking about Roy Rogers when they were listing his weaknesses. Uh, the first weakness was bad knees. <laughs> doesn't seem like a great weakness as a big man. But anyway. Uh. I love how blunt they are with these. Yeah. And, and these honestly weren't even that bad compared to some of the older drafts. If you look back, but now like they really, all the negatives, they almost now find a way to like spin into a potential positive. Like they're pretty blunt with the descriptions in 1996. Right. Yeah. Roy Rogers was out of the league after basically one and a half seasons. Can't believe the guy with bad knees and a screw loose in his foot uh, didn't have longer career. <laughs> happening daily we're being conned by the institutions we used to trust the mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing american families time is short before something big happens and that's why so many folks are preparing they're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from my patriot supply go to mypatriotsupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. 
At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com 